Good morning. Uh, we'll be reading um, in Luke 15, verses 11 through 24. Luke 15. Oh, can't do that. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went out to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. In December of 1778, an Anglican pastor uh, in London sat down to, to write a hymn. He was going to use it on the New Year's Day um, uh, service that was coming up in just a couple of weeks. And the hymn that he wrote was actually a testimony of his own journey of salvation, which had taken place exactly 30 years prior. The pastor's name was John Newton, and the hymn that he wrote was Amazing Grace. John Newton's mom had been a devout Christian, and his dad was a very irreligious captain of a merchant ship. John decided to follow in his father's footsteps, and so he became a navigator and a pilot in the merchant ship himself. But then he joined the crew of a slave trader in order to be able to make even more money. And so he made several trips going up and down the African coast, capturing men and women to be sold for profit. He had little time for God and even ridiculed the Christian faith. On March 21st, 1748, he found himself along with the ship in a very large storm. He had just completed his shift at the wheel and had been replaced by a man, and that gentleman was washed overboard by a large wave. John Newton was forced to take the wheel once again, and he cried out to God, Lord, have mercy on us. 
Eleven hours later, the storm subsided and the ship was able to make it into a port. Newton sincerely gave his life to Jesus Christ that day. And every March 21st, for the rest of his life, he would spend that entire day fasting, praying, and praising God for his salvation, both salvation from the storm as well as, more importantly, salvation from his sin. After a few years, Newton traded life on the sea for life in the ministry. He also became a vocal critic of slavery and a key leader in the abolitionist movement in England. And just seven months before John Newton's death in 1807, the British Parliament passed a law outlawing the slave trade throughout the British Empire. Now, throughout the years after his salvation, John Newton was often asked to share his testimony in various churches around England. And as a part of that testimony, he would often say, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. And then he wrote Amazing Grace as a testimony of Christ's and God the Father's love and grace and mercy in bringing him salvation. And as he came to the end of verse 1, he wrote the words, I once was lost, but now I'm found. He took those words right out of the parable that we're going to be looking at today. And the reason John Newton did that was because he said, I see myself in this parable. And if you and I have an open heart as we go through the parable to get to I have a feeling that you and I will find ourselves in this parable in one way or the other as well. As we started our series on the parables a couple of weeks ago, we saw that the context of the parable is really important if we're going to fully understand it. And the context of the parable of the lost son or the parable son is actually at the beginning of Luke chapter 15 in verses 1 and 2. And it says there that now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. As Jesus is traveling about, and this is the time in his ministry where he's still gathering large crowds of people, the crowds included these tax collectors and these sinners. These are the people that were considered outcasts of Jewish society. They were unfit to be able to go to the temple. They were unwelcome in any of the local synagogues. They were shunned by people like the scribes and the Pharisees. The tax collectors were Jews that were employed by the Roman government to, as you might guess, collect taxes. And so in that regard, they're considered traitors by their fellow Jews, but they're also oftentimes were dishonest. They would charge money above and beyond the taxes that were owed and then pocket the excess for themselves. Their contact with Romans made them unclean, which meant that they could not participate in the ceremonies at the temple. And as I said, they were unwelcome in the synagogue as well. The other people were called sinners. It's a general term for anyone who lived a life that disregarded the Jewish law and Jewish traditions. It included people like prostitutes, drunkards, gamblers, thieves. And the Pharisees taught that you were not to eat with either group of people, with tax collectors or sinners. You were not to have any business association with them 
unless it was absolutely necessary. You were to have no unnecessary contact and no interaction with them of any kind because these people were beneath the dignity of any righteous law-abiding Jew. Now, it's often been noted that in contrast to the Jewish leaders, these folks, the tax collectors and sinners, were attracted to Jesus. And it has to be because of the gracious way in which he treated them in contrast to what they were getting from others. It's a, it's a great lesson for us because as Jesus is gracious in accepting and interacting with these folks, he never compromises his own righteousness. And he never compromises the word of God either. But he's able to do what Paul talks, calls living truth and love. In Ephesians chapter 4, and Jesus is a role model for us of how to interact with a society that is not living according to biblical standards and yet needs to experience the graciousness and the love of Christ. The Pharisees and the scribes are using the fact that Jesus is hanging around with these people to attack him. They've already accused Jesus of being empowered by Satan, and the fact that Jesus is associating now with Satan's people, which is how the scribes and Pharisees would have viewed these tax collectors and sinners, and not hanging around with the righteous God's, righteous God's people like themselves, well, that meant that Jesus could not possibly be a man of God. So in response to verses 1 and 2, Jesus tells actually three parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And the, re- and the, the, the idea behind each of these parables is the fact that God has a gracious and merciful heart for sinners. And at the end of the day, we're all sinners. God wants us to experience His amazing grace. The first two parables that Jesus tells, the lost sheep and the lost coin, picture God seeking us and the joy that He has when we're found. The parable of the, or the, uh, the prodigal son or the lost son, Jesus tells a story that's got a lot more detail. And, and it's interesting because it's a story that includes the Pharisees and scribes the tax collectors and sinners, and God the Father as the main characters. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's actually holding the story up as a mirror for the audience that is hearing the story to see themselves in it. Now the main point, and we talked about this, every parable has one main point. There could be some secondary ones, but there's one main point. The one main point of the parable of the lost son is this. God has a gracious and merciful heart for us and wants us to experience His amazing grace. God has a merciful and gracious heart towards us and wants us to experience His amazing grace. And again, the cast of characters, the Father is in verse 11 as we come back to the parable itself or the story. In verse 11, Jesus continued and says, There was a man who had two sons. There's three characters, main characters in the story. The father in this character represents God the Father. The younger son in the story is going to represent the tax collectors and the sinners. And the older son in the story represents the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus starts by talking about the disrespectful and rebellious actions of this younger son. 
He gets into verse 12 and he says that the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. The son makes this outrageous, selfish request that he wants his share of the estate and he wants it now. Now, the older brother would have received a double inheritance, which means that this younger son is owed one-third of the total value of the estate. And the younger son doesn't want to wait. Normally, you wait for the death of the father before you get the inheritance, but he doesn't want to wait. He's basically saying to his dad, Dad, you can't die fast enough for me. Give me my money now. It's legal. However, it's outrageous. It's disrespectful. It's selfish. And yet, the father agrees. And it forces him to divide the estate between the two of them. And then the son embarks on a rebellious path of sinful indulgence. In verse 13, it says that after, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. In most cases, even after the father, after the father would have died, the estate would have been kept together. And the brothers would have managed the estate together. And then at the end of the season, they would have divided the profits. That way, the estate stayed in the family, most importantly, but also you can make more money for the more assets that you have. And so that's what is expected. But the younger son instead takes his one-third of the estate and he liquidates it because he wants the cash. He's got no interest in working the estate. He's got no interest, apparently, to work at all. And his decision affects the ability of the father and the older son to generate income. They've got only two-thirds of the estate now that they can get a profit from. The younger son then goes to a distant country. That means, in the context, he leaves Israel and he goes to live amongst Gentiles. And so, in the Jewish eyes, this boy is abandoning his family, but now he's going to abandon his God. And he then squanders his wealth in wild living. We're going to learn that this includes prostitutes. Undoubtedly, it includes extensive partying. He's indulging in any and every sensual desire he has without giving any thought and definitely not having any restrictions. And he squanders it. That word literally means to scatter or throw away. He can't spend his money fast enough. At this point, the tax collectors and sinners listening to Jesus get a little uneasy. Maybe they even start to blush because they know Jesus is talking about them. He's talking about their lifestyle. You can picture the scribes and the Pharisees giving them the evil eye and saying, yeah, he's talking about you. And they have to be, and the tax collectors and the sinners have to be wondering, where in the world is Jesus going with this story? Then the self-indulgence leads to total destitution. As we go on in this well-known story, it says that after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
Once the money was gone, so were his friends. There's nobody to help him out. And then there's a famine, and that means that not only is there a lack of food, but now there's, there's a lack of work. There's a lack of jobs during the famine. There's no social safety net here, he, so he begins to literally starve to death. Now, the interesting thing is that if he had been in Israel, the rich would have been biblically responsible to provide a way for people like him to secure food. There was a safety net in the Old Testament law for the poor. But he's in Gentile territory. And so there's not that cultural value. There's nothing that says that anybody has to help him at all. And so he hires himself out. The word there means literally he attached himself to someone. See, this is not a wage-earning job. What he's done is he's sitting outside a rich man's gate begging. Instead of going place to place, he's attached himself. He's going to the same gate, the same property every single day. And every time this rich guy walks by him, he's asking, can you help me? Do you got some food? Do you got a little money? Maybe you got some work I can do. And day after day, he's at that same spot begging with this same rich guy. Every time the guy walks by, this, guy, this beggar is sitting there. And so finally he says, you know what? You want to do something? Go out in the fields and you can feed my pigs. Probably just to get the young man off his back, the rich man gives him something to do. And that's all this is. Because the rich man does not agree to pay him anything. The young man goes out and does this, hoping maybe he'll get some food. Maybe he'll get a coin out of this. And so he goes out, and he feeds the pigs. Now, the pigs are being fed these pods, and it's interesting to note, these pods are inedible to humans. People cannot eat them. And so the boy is wishing he could eat these pods, but literally he can't. It's a cruel twist for someone who's starving to death. And he's hoping that the man might give him some food for his work, but the man doesn't give him anything. And so he continues to starve. And then, by now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they've written this boy off as worthless, and now he's, he's, he's non-redeemable. He's violated the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 21, this young man should be stoned to death. While this was rarely followed through with in Jesus' day, the least that the audience here, especially the scribes and Pharisees, are expecting is that the father within the story is going to completely and finally disown this boy. Curse him and disown him. But instead, we see in the story that the young man has a moment of self-awareness and repentance. He has a moment of self-awareness and repentance in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up. And he went to his father. He comes to his senses. 
Finally, he sees himself in a situation for what it is. He's able to see himself in a situation accurately. And the key thing is this. He takes responsibility. He doesn't try to make excuses. He doesn't try to blame anybody. He doesn't try to rationalize his actions. He simply owns the sin, and he owns the consequences that this sin has produced in his life. And the interesting thing in this story is that what he remembers is the goodness of his father. Having come to his senses, he remembers the goodness of his father. In the largest states, there were household servants employed full-time by the owner. They're paid a wage. They're given room and board on the estate. But then there are those, the group that were called hired men. Hired men were unskilled day laborers. They got paid for that day's work that they would do. There was no room and board. There's no guarantee there's going to be any work tomorrow. And so what these day uh, hired men would do is they would go to that estate every single morning and see, is there any work for me today? And he says, make me like one of these hired men. That's what he's going to say to his dad. He's going to ask his dad to be made a day laborer. He's not even going to ask to be one of his actual servants that live on the estate. He just wants to, let's go down, let's just be a hired man. Because here's the thing. His dad was generous because he gave these hired men food every day, whether they worked or not. They have more than enough food, he says. That means that when they go and there's no work, the man hands them food to make sure they have something to eat for the day. His father is generous beyond the required or the expected. It's a great picture of God the Father. And so he's saying, let me be like one of your hired men because the other thing that is is happening here is that he knows that he will receive food, but he also have, have the opportunity to have at least some degree of work. Because as he goes back, he needs to be able to pay back his dad for the money that he squandered. And so remembering the goodness of his father, he gets up and he goes. Very important piece of repentance here is this. Repentance moves beyond remorse and leads to action. Repentance will bring change. The young man says to himself, I will set out and go. But then he got up and he went. You know, while Jesus wants the tax collectors and the sinners to know that God loves them, that God is being merciful and gracious to them, he also wants these tax collectors and sinners to know that the God the Father's ultimate desire for them is repentance. Repentance that will lead them to lead the life they're living, to begin to walk with God in loving obedience to his word. Paul says this about God in Romans 2, chapter 4. He says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, 
forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. See, if these tax collectors and sinners do not repent and begin to walk with God, ultimately their sin is going to lead them destitute. It may lead them destitute physically and financially, or maybe not, but it will definitely lead them destitute spiritually. And so Jesus in this story is calling the tax collectors and sinners who are listening to this story, he's calling them to repentance. He's saying, do what this young man has done. Do what this young man has done. And then he takes us to the gracious and merciful actions of the Father. There are a number of things that we see the Father do here that are going to go against the grain of what would have been culturally expected by Jesus' audience, unexpected by the expectations of the Pharisees, but also unexpected according to the experience of the tax collectors and sinners. It says in the second half of verse 20, that while he, the young man, was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Father's looking for him. It says that while the young man is still a long ways off, the father sees him first. This picture is that the father gets up every day and looks down the road that his young son took to walk away from him and see if he's returning. Each day he's watching and waiting with the hope that today's the day my son will return. Just as, as a quick note here, if you as a mom and a dad are in the experience where you have a prodigal, you have someone who's walked away from a walk with the Lord, get on the hillside, pray to God for that purse, for that child to come to their senses, and then wait in anticipation for God to do a work in their life. Because it is God who will do a work in their life. But then make sure that you are reflecting the heart that you see this father has as we go through now the rest of the story. But stand, wait, and pray. Because any given day might be the day that God brings that prodigal to their senses and brings them home. His dad was looking for him. And his father runs to him. He has compassion, first of all, because you have to picture this. The boy's clothing is dirty and tattered. After weeks of living among pigs and not bathing, you smell this young man long before you see him. And it's all because of his own actions. It's all because of his own rebellion and sin. But when the dad sees his son in this self-made condition, instead of being filled with disdain, he's filled with compassion. And he runs. The word ran in the story means to run a race. This dad sees his son and he runs as fast as his aging legs will take him. In order to do that, the dad being a rich man would have had two. He would have had a long flowing tunic and over that he would have had a long flowing robe that he had to hitch up above the knees to be able to run. A rich man in Jewish society never showed his legs. He always walked slowly with dignity. 
As Jesus is telling the story, the listeners are saying, man, the father just humiliated himself through his action of running. He's demonstrating, though, acceptance towards his son, his joy of his son's return, but he's also offering protection. You see, if the villagers see the son, their reaction is going to be to run towards him too. But they're going to run towards him to spit in his face, to tell him to leave, to insult insult and jeer him. But the father's presence prevents that from happening. And then the father welcomes him with affection. You only hugged and greeted people with a kiss if they were family or friends. What he's communicating to his son is restitution for what you squandered is not necessary. Forgiveness is given freely by grace. And then he restores them in verse 21 and 22. The son starts his spiel. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father stops him mid-sentence. He turns to the servants and he says, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The best robe refers to a special robe that the father wore only on special occasions. Very expensive robe. But he wants his son to wear it. Because the son is going to be the guest of honor at this feast that he's planning in his mind. He gives him a ring. That's the family signet ring that bore the family crest that was used to stamp the wax seals on legal documents that made them authentic, that authenticated them. The son is being given all rights, privileges, and authorities as a member of the family. And sandals. Slaves and servants usually were barefoot, and the son came home expecting to be made the lowest level servant in his father's household, but instead he's being received as a beloved son and given sandals to wear. And the father celebrates his return. Bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. I believe that this parable describes what happens in heaven when a person comes to personal faith in Jesus Christ. But I also believe it's what happens when a believer falls away from the Lord, repents, and comes home. There's celebration. All three of these parables picture joy and celebration when someone is found or in this case returns. In the parable of the lost sheep in verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. At the end of the parable of the lost coin, Jesus says in verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And in verse 24 again, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's what happened in heaven the moment you place saving faith in Jesus. You bring that much joy to the heart of God. 
is what happens if, as a believer, you drift away from the Lord and you come back. That's celebrated too. And you bring joy to the heart of God. You were celebrated in heaven with joy. Just sit on that for a moment. There's one person missing in all, however, and it is, of course, the prideful, self-righteous older son. Verse 25, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, they replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has given him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There's so much in these verses. In fact, some commentators refer to verses 25 and 31 as the parable of the older son. And they devote an entire chapter to these verses in their commentary. But we're just going to make two observations because I think they're the two main points that Jesus is making. Number one, the older son is prideful, self-righteous, and resentful toward not only his brother, but his father. In verse 29, he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. This older son resents the fact that he's had to work under his father's authority. The only reason he's done it is because he knows he's got this inheritance waiting for him. He doesn't love his father. He resents his father. And in the end, he is just as selfish and just as disrespectful as his younger brother. He's just more subtle and more responsible in his behavior. Jesus is pointing out that the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't love God. They're prideful. They're self-righteous and feel like God owes them a favor because they've earned it. And the prideful self-arrogance that they have is just as sinful in the eyes of God as the ungodly sensual behavior of the tax collectors and the sinners. And they need God's amazing grace as much as they do. But the second thing is that the father loves the older son just as much as he does the younger son and invites him to the same repentance and to the same feast. This is an incredible moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and don't miss it. He looks at these prideful, self-righteous men who are in the process of rejecting him. Eventually, they're going to condemn him to death, and he loves them. Jesus Christ loved the scribes and Pharisees with the same love that he loved the tax collectors and sinners. 
And he invites them, like them earlier, he now invites them to see themselves in the story and repent of their rejection and to receive him as Messiah and in the process receive his Father's amazing grace. The same offer that he had put out to the tax collectors and sinners, he now makes to them. And the interesting thing is that in the story, the older son, we're left hanging. We don't know what he's going to do. Jesus Christ is purposefully leaving open the door for those scribes and Pharisees to have a change of heart, to repent, and to come to him. He's saying to them, it's still a story being written. What will you do with this offer of God's amazing grace? And all of this brings us to the communion table. The amazing grace that brings us forgiveness from our sin comes out of what Jesus Christ did for us at the cross. He died to pay the penalty for our sin, and then three days later he rose from the grave in victory over death so he could provide for us eternal life. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as you come to the table this morning... Just soak in the fact that you and your salvation brings joy to the heart of God and you and your salvation are celebrated in heaven because you are a display of the grace of God. And as I said, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you're welcome to join us here at the table. If you are a believer and you've drifted away from God in your life, you've taken that prodigal road, You have a loving Father who's looking for your return and waiting for you to repent and come back home. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, the offer of amazing grace stands open to you, a forgiveness and eternal life. And I would love the opportunity to talk to you about what it means to have that personal relationship with Jesus. Please come and let's have have a conversation. And as we look out in our world and community and regardless of what we think is happening in the world today, let's make sure we have the same love and compassion for people that we see God has in this story. Because all of us need the amazing grace of God. That's the only difference. Amen? And so as the deacons come forward, as we get ready for the table, I think it would be appropriate to do this.